Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better. Today's guest on Around the Coin is Dawn Newton. She is the COO and co-founder of NetKey. Dawn had a very successful exit earlier in her career, and she didn't have to work again. She traveled Europe. She pursued her love and passion of the culinary arts. She became a chef, a volunteer chef at a big-time restaurant. Uh, we talked about her journey there, what she learned, what the experience was like, and how she got pulled into crypto for her next business. Uh, NetKey is one of the earliest crypto companies that I've talked to. Uh, they were started way before the 27 ICO boom and everything else, uh, but they specifically address the issue of KYC, AML, identification. So we talked about what they're trying to accomplish in the world, and we covered so much ground. We talked about the, the arc of society, humanity. Uh, this conversation was interstellar and real enjoyable for me. Um, please share the comment on the show if you enjoyed it. Uh, we really appreciate your feedback. And if you have suggestions for other guests, please let us know. Here is Don Newton. All right, Don, thanks for hopping on with me. I'm excited to learn more about you and uh, learn through the things that you have learned. Uh, I love your background. Uh, you're currently at and have started NetKey. What, um, you know, give me the, sh the short just description of what NetKey is and then what was your involvement in those early days? Were you brought in like with the idea? Like how yeah. did that sort of form? 100%. So, um, you know, what we do is basically compliance tools for, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto, Lord knows those names have morphed over time. Um, and the way I got into it was, you know, early on in my career, I uh, did a startup that was incredibly successful, which was Net Zero, which was this free internet company, right? AOL was charging 30 bucks a month. Um, these guys that created it thought like, this should be free, like radio and like, you know, uh, regular TV. And so they had this idea that it should be ad supported. And I was industry hire number two, you know, we came late to the party, there was already AOL, there was already Microsoft, you know, there was already Earthlink, there was already MindSpring. And we kind and just, you know, flipped the whole business around, you know, onboarded millions of users in a short amount of time. And it was just this crazy wild ride. When I went in there, I started out when I walked in the door, there were four employees doing tech support, 
you know, in all of support operations. And then when I left three years later, I had over a thousand employees reporting directly into me. Wow. And so I was, um, needless to say, I did a phenomenal job at scaling and I, you know, also hit it, which was great on a startup, you know, that went out the gate and it had a, you know, billion dollar IPO, which was unusual. And I just said, like, I'm done. I'm never doing this ever again. And I went to culinary school and I, you know, per- pursued a career in chefing. I did like my stage in Italy. I, there was no looking back. I said, you know, I did that famous Sean Connery, like never again. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will never play Bond ever again. And then my co-founder, who also worked with me at Net Zero, went to a Bitcoin conference and came home, was like, oh my God, this technology, you got to look at it, you got to look at it. I'm like, nah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm good. I'm good. Don't need it. Don't hear it. And like super excited and really wanting to share. Come on, you got to look, you got to look. And I'm like, okay, fine. Send me some stuff. And I'm, you know, reading the, the Bitcoin white paper. And I'm just like shaking my head and I'm just like cursing. Yeah. Just like, you know, SOB, F. And he's like, what's, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, oh no, nothing's wrong. You're absolutely right. This is going to be the next internet. We did the internet. This is going to be the next thing. And I swore to God, I would never do this again. And now we're going to do this again, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me, and, uh, let me ask you real quick. What was um? What did Net Zero have that that I want to make sure I understand that? Were they free and and they made money on ads, and that was the reason people shifted in? At industry standard at the time was, and what were they doing again? They were like a surge. Thirty bucks a month. It was thirty bucks a month for dial up, right? I mean, that's what AOL was charging, you know, which is a lot at the time. You know, your phone bills were like ten, fifteen dollars, right? People don't realize that. So, like, you know, it was it was incredibly expensive to be on the internet. Um, and so, you know, these guys' idea was that it would be ad supported. So what they did was they ran a banner bar that you as the customer could move, but they had a banner at the bottom, kind of like how news now has that ticker at the bottom, right? When you're watching, you know, uh, TV news. And you could move it either from the bottom or up to the top, but either way it was running. And they had like huge ad sales with, you know, Best Buy, Victoria's Secret, General Motors, you know, they just went and got huge ad sales. And as a result, we were able to give the internet away for free. And then we focused on, you know, going into more rural areas of America where the titans of industry like Microsoft and AOL just weren't covering. You know, and we went and and got and got that covered. And so we believe that the internet, you know, it was it was a mission of like equal access for all. You know, that everyone, no matter where they are, should have you know free free access to the internet. And so that was a that was a game changer at the time. What do you think of that model now? Is it what would you say? What percentage of people who access the internet do it for free through that ad model? Oh, I mean, that's still, I mean, that's still going on. I mean, the last guy, you know, um, last I checked, uh, you know, it was still a significant portion. Um, and the other thing was at the time though, is that of course these other providers have taken the, taken the cost down, but that was for dial up only, Mm. you know, and now a lot of people that, you know, have, have it are on, you know, uh, bigger networks, 
um, you know, dial-ups no longer used, but dial-up is still like a big deal in rural areas um, and still being used because they, they don't have the alternative of, you know, cable, et cetera. But most people have yeah. moved on to higher speed, higher speed, higher access networks that they're then paying for. And I haven't tracked it. Like, you know, I don't know that anybody has, has, you know, tried to figure out that, I mean, I know that net zero does do it um, and still to this day has ad supported and they also offer the high speed. Interesting. You know, but yeah, I haven't, yeah. I can't say I haven't followed that. I've moved on. When I said I left, I like left. Yeah. I was like, I don't even want to support my printer. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to know how to, you know, how to, how to fix my, my toner at that point, kind of like walking away. But yeah, I mean, at the time it was a, a groundbreaking, um, model to have the advertisers pay for it. So I think it's yeah. one of those things where it's just morphed off of what television is, right? Like television today. You've got, you know, your ad supported, you know, CBS, ABC, et cetera. We're all getting those for free. But then you've got your higher end programming like, you know, uh, HBO or Showtime. And then you've also got Hulu, which markets all of that stuff. And you can get, you know, pay access for that and, you know, and uh, and get a little bit of all of them. Mm, interesting. And uh, did you, were you a stockholder early on? I imagine you had a you know, very comfortable exit where you didn't have to work again, like in the millions of dollars. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, so I, yeah, 100%, 100% on the, on the money. So I went in, I was, um, Justin, who is my co-founder in this was industry hire number one. And he was out building networks for, you know, big firms. Like he was actually, you know, designing and building out the internet as we know it, the commercial internet that exists today. He was the, you know, one of, one of many, you know, he was not Al Gore and he did not build, you know, he did not create the internet, but he was actually out building real person going out and building the um, internet. And then I was running support operations. And so I was industry hire number two at the company. Um, so yeah, I had a successful exit and then, you know, yeah. didn't, didn't technically need to work anymore. So I always loved cooking. I yeah. always loved feeding people, but you know, it was a lot, right? Like I didn't know it wasn't easy to scale. Like I know how to scale tech, right? But like, and scaling people, but like scaling in the kitchens, you know, putting out a dinner for four, easy, putting out a dinner for a hundred by myself, not so easy. So it was like, you know what? I'm going to go to culinary school. And I got to, you know, travel the world. I took, you know, I, I went and took classes in like Japan and Korea. I did my stage in Italy. I worked at a Michelin star restaurant, you know, here in Los Angeles and one um, of the initial slow food restaurants when that was, you know, birthing in LA. So it was super cool. A mm. lot of fun. And you were doing that crazy for front for fun. You just worked at a restaurant because you wanted to. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Super yeah. awesome. I mean, Jeff's love when you say you'll work for free and you're a hard worker and show up on the daily. Yeah, and yeah. it was an amazing experience. What, what, why do you? What, what do you get out of it when you're? You know, you don't have to work. You made millions from the steel. You go into a restaurant and say, "Hey, can I work for free?" What's going through your head, or yeah. how do you feel about it? So I think a lot of it's interesting. A lot of people who retired from the internet 1.0 wound up going to culinary school and becoming chefs. Like a lot of the original people that I know are actually chefs and went into that. So I think it's right. Like there is at the time when we were building the internet. And even if you think about it, like when Twitter was first starting, they were like crashing going out. Right. So everybody who is the early builders, it's all about 
you know, building the house, right? Building the house, building the foundation and building the house. And at times, random fires break out, <laughs> like actual fires. So the house is burning down on one side, but we've got to keep building it on the other side, right? And so there's that constant rush, you know, um, of adrenaline. And I think it's why some people take up, you know, these extreme sports. And if you're in a kitchen and like all of these customers come in at once and it's fire and you see it on TV and that's actually real, it gets bananas in a kitchen. And it really is about how fast can you move to put out the best food you possibly can to perfection in a short amount of time and all collaborating together without knocking into each other, scalding each other, cutting off your finger, you know, all of these things. And so it was a very, to me at least, a very similar adrenaline rush to move from, you know, tech ops over to working in a kitchen. Um, and then the collaboration is also awesome when you're really building something, right? Like we're all working together and brainstorming and figuring it out. So one of the things I loved, I worked at a restaurant called The House, which was um, Scooter Camphor was one of the first chefs for the slow food movement. And one of the things we did on Sunday was the senior chefs, myself included. So it was her, the exec chef, myself, and another uh, person who also worked there for free, which funnily enough was uh, Jerry Ryan who plays Seven of Nine at Star Trek. Oh, um, yeah. So she's a famous Hollywood actress who also was chefing in that kitchen and donating her time for free. Um, you know, uh, so people who like have intense jobs, crazy jobs, I think we also do like intense hobbies, you know, adrenaline style hobbies. So the four of us would go to the farmer's market um, in the morning on Sundays and just all go in different directions and think about things we like. And then we would all meet in the center because it was just like a, a T, you know, or mm -hmm. a cross rather. Meet in the center and just be like, what did you see? What did you see? Oh, this, that, the other. It's like, okay, now we know what we'll grab. And we would go back, grab everything. We would lay it out on this big, long table in the dining room and literally make up the menu on the fly based on what we had bought. And so on Sundays, if you were coming to the restaurant and had a reservation, you had no idea what you were going to get served. You would eat what we put in front of you. It was served family style. So you were sitting with strangers. So all these things were just like weird and different now normalized because the slow food movement grew and grew, you know, and now you go into restaurants and there's these long tables where, you know, you're sitting with other people and stuff. But at the time it was really new wild, interesting. And so, yeah, so we created the menus on Sundays at like, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and then just started missing out, you know, yeah. And, and yeah, everything. That sounds to me like it's a more creative process on the, on the uh, restaurant tour side. You're, you're being more creative in the menu processing. I imagine there's more volatility, right? If there's not the kind of food or if the menu is, is challenging, but there's also the, camaraderie or the community aspect that is difficult to process. You know, it's difficult when you think about a business, generally you think about, okay, we're going to do this new thing, but then we're going to process control it. So we can do it over and over and over again and optimize it and make it really efficient. And that's how you get factory farm food and you get fast food and, and your Starbucks that it tastes the exact same every time all day long, 365. And there's a, there's a, there's a, 
successful business model in that. But it's almost like if you flipped it entirely, if you didn't even play that game, that's also successful business. Is that is is that growing? Are there more of these? I haven't even been to one of them, but are the number of restaurants that are doing this slow food technique uh, growing more so than the average? Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yes. There's always going to be. So, you know, fast, easy, quick is always going to be, you know, popular, especially, you know, in America to Americans. Right. Um, and but you'll what you'll notice is, you know, we went from having McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, Pizza Hut to now having um, things that are still fast, but that are there's you know more variety there like a Chipotle you know, um, and, and places like that where the menu, even though it's still fast food has started to upgrade and you're getting, you know, fresh avocados and, you know, healthier meals. So that slow food movement changed the game of like, not only slow food where, you know, you're coming up with menus on the fly, no one knows what's happening that day, but it also directly impacted the fast food industry because they saw, you know, business tapering off or not growing as much as it used to. And so they then had to innovate. And that that area was, you know, ripe for innovation. And so you're seeing like smaller chains that can to what what I what I call, you know, McMacking, right? They can McMackify the business, but still have like a wider variety of choice, healthier foods. Um, you know, keep it interesting, change menus out. Menus didn't ever change really, right? But now you're seeing they'll have like, you know, a month of this or a month of that. And so that kind of, you know, things, I think where there's innovation on one side of the industry, it always winds up impacting, you know, innovation on the other side or inspiring innovation on the other side. Totally, totally. So if you think about it, it's a lot cooler, like ramen's all over the place now, you yeah. know, like, and so there's, you know, but I mean, back in the day, sushi was weird. You know, like I grew up, my first, my first restaurant job as a kid was being like a busser in a, a sushi restaurant. And Americans were like, yeah, unusual. what the hell is this? Right? Like super unusual. And now like everybody by and large eats sushi. And so we keep, you know, food, food keeps innovating, which is super, you know, cool. And now, you know, and we're always discovering in the U.S., we're discovering things that are elsewhere that are that are commonplace, but that, you know, we don't know anything about, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, right now, chefs in the past year, like, chefs have been huge about, like, Aleppo pepper, mm. you know, and how they really love how Aleppo pepper tastes, uh, you know, as a, as a finishing pepper, you know, rather than black pepper. It's not as in your face. It's, it's just different, right? And so, like, there's all these fads that come and go. Cupcakes were a big thing, mm. right? The cronut. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. super interesting. It's a, it's a place where there's always innovation. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, 
It's the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com. Code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's it's really, I think of it as a, a creative and artistic domain. So inherently, it feels like it can't be solved. Yeah, there's always going to be a new frontier. And I, I want to ask you about this in contrast to the business that you started, because this I think of as kind of like almost the the rote opposite, where it's it's exact it's a problem that if you can solve it, it helps the crypto industry flourish. Uh, but it's a I don't know if I want to use the word straightforward, but it's an obvious problem that I'm sure you saw early on, which was probably the reason why you got into NetKey saying, hey, identity KYC, understanding people is going to be a big problem. Um, did this grip you in a way where you felt like, hey, I'm going to put all the cooking stuff aside and go and build up the the tech team here? Like, what 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 motivated you early on with the business model to say this is something I want to jump back into and dedicate yourself, or was it part time? And did you put money into it? And like, how, yeah, how did you sort of grow it? Um, went full time and put money into it. Um, and I think your questions are great. I, I think that um, when you're building initially in the tech space, things are super creative. Like what I always tell people and I've always said is I'm a builder. When I was working at Net Zero, when I made the decision to leave, you know, I had innovated. I created the like first email autoresponder. Not my fault that they're terrible today and not my fault that knowledge bases are terrible today. Ours were really good, right? But I figured out that word proximity could tell people what was wrong, right? If they're going to say email and broken or email and not sending, that means that their email is broken and not sending. So we can do an automated response and have like a 90% plus success rate on it being resolved correctly the first time without human interaction. So that's super creative, right? Like super creative developing, you know, what, what was at the time one of a kind technology where I get really bored is when all that creativity is done and you're just like clocking in, handling the same tickets every day. You know, it's basically been solved and now it's maintaining. So I'm not, a, I'm definitely not a maintainer. I'm a builder. And so what really uh, excited me about the space early on was like, we are early days and no one knows what's going to happen. And somebody's going to need to figure out, like, we made a conscious decision as a team that we weren't going to look at what Bitcoin, you know, or crypto or the blockchain in of itself could solve. What we were going to look at was what hardships and what problems is this technology going to encounter? And how do we solve for that? Because that's where our expertise lied at net zero was where were the problems, right? Support operations is a problem. It's too expensive. Getting Having somebody wait on the phone 45 minutes to get to a tech person who's going to tell them the same thing that everybody else knew 100 times over, right? That's inefficient. It's ugly for the customer. It's not great for the support rep either. Like no one enjoys that. So why are we doing it, right? So innovate and make the experience better. The same thing with, you know, crypto. And so with when I was looking at it, it's like, okay, 
So we said that the internet should be open for all. We believe that Bitcoin should be open for all. Okay. So with the internet, the problem was it was too costly and there isn't, you know, and, and we needed to make sure that people were focusing on the connectivity in rural areas so that everybody could have, you know, equal access to the information that the internet was going to bring. Well, with, you know, Bitcoin, if you think about it, you know, people say that it's, you know, it's for everyone. True. But then why are all the apps written in English? Is English the only language in the entire world? And why, if you're going to KYC somebody, are all the, you know, KYC data sets that all the technology is being trained on, why are they just um, young white American men? And they are young white American men because they were the techs writing the software initially, right? So it's their data sets, of course. But if you want to be truly inclusive, right, you've got to look at things and think about where where are these problems going to come in? So, you know, one of the things that exists is that most of the KYC providers say they are global. And that is 100% factually correct. They are global, but they're global because they take the passport. And the Mm. passports are written in English. And do people without money who really need Bitcoin, who want to like circumvent the Western unions of the world and the moneygrams of the world so they can get more money and remittance back to their families wherever they come from, you know, um, do they have passports? You know, do they have, you know, does everybody in the in country, right, to accept it, have a passport? No, but they have a national ID, but that national ID is written in Russian. It's written in Mandarin. You know, it's, it's written in, you know, all these other languages. And so what we started out was if we're truly going to be a global provider for KYC for Bitcoin, then we need to recognize every single ID, no matter what language it's written in. And we need to focus on that as these people are onboarding, understand they've never had bank accounts in their lives. They haven't, you know, taken, right? They haven't, we're used to, yeah, you take a photo of a check. Now even that's becoming, nobody does that anymore, but right, you know how to do it. Hmm. But, you know, they don't know how to take a photo of their ID. They've never done it before. You know, they might not know how to take a selfie. So we we went and wrote everything in their language and not just like, I mean, Google can do a translate, you know, you can throw a, say, to, oh, do just translation. But if you think about it, when, um, what was it? The uh, investors, when like everybody was going into the token sales and accredited investors, there's a there's a term called private party that you are a like registered private party. Well, if you let the translation software in app do that, it's going to say you are Fiesta Provada. No, that's not what you are. You are not a Fiesta Provada. And so we went and got like we hired um, Hollywood does amazing right with their movies. They do amazing translations because they've got to go and take like, um, you know, turns of phrase like we do cat out of the bag. Mm-hmm. Well, that might not mean anything in Spanish if you translate yeah. it literally. You've got to find those, you know, those translations where they, they have their turn of phrases and turn it into that. And so we specifically went and said, okay, that's going to be a problem. So let's make sure we're actually talking to people globally. Let's make sure we actually can onboard people globally. Um, so that's what was really exciting to me was that, that it was still mission driven. I like my work to be mission driven, you know, feeding people is mission driven, you know, but like with the technology at zero was creating, you know, access for everyone on the internet. And with 
um, you know, net key. Um, we're trying to create equal access for everyone, no matter where they are in the world. So like our slogan that I came up with is all faces from all places. And you know, why and that, that really sums it up. Yeah. I'm curious why, uh, I, I, I see this less about, uh, some sort of moral proposition of inclusivity and more about uh, just general business acquisition and, and incentives here. When other companies are not having proper translations, um, you know, it's nice to say we want to be inclusive because it's good for people and it's, it's the right thing to do, but it's also just better for the business and you have an incentive to have more customers if you can have a proper translation. Why, why oh, is this something that... Uh, is foundational to the differentiation of NetKey and that other companies refuse to do or is hard to do in somehow in some way and they they still lag behind or, or where I are we today? So, so I think a lot of the a lot that's a great question. A lot of the KYC companies are providing support to banks, right? That's who handled all the money before. And you really, I mean, we don't have to KYC to get on Facebook, right? Where do we need to go through this kind of thing? It's with the banks. And so the um, KYC companies that are out there are very particularly regional and not global. So you'll find a, you know, KYC provider that is in, you know, Latin America that covers three countries in Latin America, and that's what they focus on. And it's for, and it's for the, the banks. Um, with us, like one of the things about the, so yes, from a practical matter, right, you would be smart to want to care about that if you indeed are global um, and who your client base is. The other thing, you know, that we realized, and it was a discovery, is like we partnered with Bit early on, and Bit was way early in the, in the space out of Barbados, and, um, you know, Gabriel Abad, who was the founder, who's, you know, now become the ambassador to the, to the UAE, um, his issue was that the people were not getting recognized. The Barbadian people, when they were taking their selfies, it wasn't recognizing, you know, that they were, that they, okay. you know, were people yeah. and so more than just map the, it back, right? yeah, more than just and the be language. Able to yeah. So you and I are, you and I are relatively easy, although I'm getting older and I'm a woman, but like, you know, I, you know, like people who were outside of those normal, you know, how those uh, data sets were programmed. Um, and it's still a problem to this day. Like every single year, there is a news article about KYC and facial recognition and how the biggest providers, you know, like Facebook, you know, like Apple, et cetera, are failing to do a great job at it. And, you know, the thing is, is that you've, you've got to actually like care enough to go and fix it and pay attention. And so we did, um, because we wanted to be, you know, a good, uh, provider for bit. So we, you know, worked it out and just fixed and fixed and edited and edited and worked on, you know, um, updating and honing that technology so that we've got like really, you know, high recognition rates. For, um, for all, facial all recognition? No yeah. Because you want to map, because what we want to do is, right, we've got to make sure that you're you and I'm me. If like, if I get a whole, like, if you worked for me, right? I take a photo of your ID. Like, that's part of the process in the United States. Like, the employer takes a photo of both sides of your ID when I think you're filling out, what is it, an I-9, I think? Yeah. Right? Like, I'm legally obligated to do that. Well, now I've got a photo of you, you know. I turn around and try to, you know, pretend to be you. We've got to be able to map that my face doesn't map to the face on your ID. Interesting. 
So it's really how, cool. It's super interesting. How, how do you, how would this be measured? Like if they were to be an open critique of Facebook or Apple, is it the percentage of success rates on uh, facial recognition based on the gender, age, and pigmentation of the skin? I mean, yeah. are those the kind of quantitative assessments you'd put forth? Hundred hundred. So it's the National Institute of Science and Technology in the United States that does this report and they come out with it every year and they're really clear about like what's succeeding, you know, what's failing, et cetera. Um, but like I think and, you know, I don't I don't want to mistake, but I believe that like last year, one of them actually just withdrew their data set and said, you know what? we're not going to be evaluated anymore. Thanks. No, thanks. Do they feel it wasn't a fair uh, evaluation? Um, no, I just, I, 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 who knows? I mean, like I have, I have no idea why they pulled it. They just didn't, you know, didn't submit it um, kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. If you're, you know, in the, in the space, right. If your target clients are, um, you know, wealthy people, Wealthy people all have passports, mm-hmm. you know, but if you're going into some place, you know, into some place else and have your focus, um, be it, you know, that those that information is out there. Like you can look up like, you know, percentage of uh, people that have passports by country and you'll see it like even in the U.S., the number of people that have passports isn't that high. Yeah, like it, that talking to me, I was like, whoa, because I have one. And I was like, whoa, OK. Not, it's not as is not as great as, as I would even expect. We're we're probably far less than average, just because geographically we're very isolated, you know, as opposed to European or yeah. South Asian countries. Uh, and we're huge. Like a lot of people have seen America, like they've seen the United States and travel, right? But if you do that, you you know, you just need your driver's license to get on a plane or drive around, right? Like we don't we don't need a, a passport, um, you know, until we're going, yeah, some place of of distance, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and do you You're think correct. there will we be, do, do you see us moving towards a, uh, a more centralized system of identity, either on chain or off chain in some international coalition of database identity management? Like are, it's, I've, I've noticed there's more of the, as I've flown inbound back to the United States in airports, I've noticed more of these kind of like, you know, just stand there and it scans your eyeballs and scans your face. And it's like, oh, Michael, and here you are. And the the technology seems to be, you know, encroaching for sure. I think China probably leads this where they have, like, they'll do facial recognition at a convenience store and, and everywhere you go. And at least in the United States, we the government just seems to do it when we're at TSA uh, and border security coming in or out of the country. Do you see this continuing to creep where there'll be mandates that the government takes the data that you guys collect if they're not already doing that or they're somehow um, reaching further and further into the domains of identification? And then if if you do, I'm curious the role that like crypto would play uh, possibly yeah. Yeah, resisting that. Yeah, no, that is a great question. So one of the things that really uh, flips people and they're like, oh, I didn't realize, right, is that both my co-founder and myself, you know, do KYC and identity. And at the same time, we are huge advocates for having self-sovereign digital identity. We are huge advocates that there should not 
at all be these huge warehouses of data. We are huge proponents that you should not be required to submit and that these companies should not be required to keep all of your information because there's data breaches all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, like I mean, how many times have your identity been stolen? Me? I don't, I, it's over 10, yeah. well over 10 at this point that my identity has been stolen. So, um, fun fact, we went and actually like, you know, protested. And I was dressed as um, uh, the Statue of Liberty, green face paint and all. And my co-founder was dressed as Uncle Sam. And he had me in chains. And um, it was about um, the uh, um, uh, when the we, when it found out that the Americans like that all of our emails, et cetera, with the prison program oh, that had access to knew everything that we didn't know, right, with Edward Snowden, and it was about Restore the Fourth, and they, you know, all, of course, the media, ABC, CBS, NBC, they love to go and talk to the crazy people that are, you know, in costume, and what they didn't expect was to get the two of us that were incredibly articulate and knew our stuff and were able to cite laws and legislation and, you know, uh, and so it was, it was really, it was really great. So I am... What I'm really hoping is that we go towards where Europe is heading and what their thoughts are about it, that every single one of us should have the right to be forgotten, that um, every single one of us should not have to share all of our data, like all of our data, um, and that it shouldn't be autosaved. Like if, if you think about it, right, like if easy one that everybody can understand, right? If you're, you know, walking into a bar, you've got to turn over your ID to prove that you're 21. Well, if that person's got a great memory, you know, um, they now know where you, where you live. Mm-hmm. You know, they now, they now know your home address and what business is it of theirs? But that's in the view when they go to look down to check, okay, let me check that you're you and let right. me check that you're, you know, over 21, but that other data that they get is none of their business, right? you know, and there's places like, um, well, Amazon, right? Like, I mean, I love the convenience of, of Amazon Prime, but they've got my address, you know, they've got my credit card, they've got the expiration date, they've got the security code. So if you want that one click, that one click comes at a cost. And the cost of that one click is, is that you're, they're storing your code your security code, which is the one thing, like somebody who's got your your credit card, right? They don't have the other pieces of it. Okay, you know, worthless. But I know that like I got, I personally got hit by the Target hack because I had shopped at Target and they had all of my information. And then somebody went and, you know, grabbed it and, you know, went off to the races. Um, so I really like the idea that um, you know, where, where the European Union is heading, that we all have the right to be forgotten. And, and then specifically, specifically with, um, you know, the technology that, you know, this industry has now to have like self-sovereign digital identity where we have various attestations. So if I'm going to your business and you say, okay, I need, Dawn, you need to provide me with your first and last name and your date of birth. I can say yes or no to that. And, but if I say, okay, those are the only two things I'm sending you and you're not getting my social and you're not right. getting my right. address, my height, my weight and all this other stuff. So what I believe we can do, but, you know, regulation needs to catch up, you know, um, and regulators need to catch up. 
is um, that all of this is possible and, you know, can can be solved for, but you've got to change the regulations to allow it. And I see that, you know, the EU, you know, not that they're perfect, you know, but their governments are understanding it and want to protect the individual and our, you know, sovereign rights. And um, so I, I hope to see the rest of the globe follow that mindset rather than the fact that all of these corporate entities basically own our data and can sell our data, um, you know, uh, and just change that whole thing. Would you describe, so, yeah, so like yeah. no. would you describe the European attitude as being in contrast to the U S as being, um, m- more, I'm curious to sort of dissect the big picture, parallels between why they're what are they leading exactly and what what's the commonality yeah. between where they're leading so i think of it as they seem to be in many ways leading this uh charge for individual freedom which when i think about it it doesn't it doesn't really resonate with my anecdotal experiences of the contrast between the u.s and and Europe. I, I generally think of Europe as being more collectivist. You know, they're physically closer together, so they influence each other more. They they benefit. They have the the euro. They have you know, other shared uh, programs. In the United States, it seems like there's a big emphasis on individual freedoms and rights, and but there's also corporate freedoms and rights. So if I give my credit card to Amazon, if I willingly give my information to these companies, then they can do what they want, and so we value that as well, which is kind of the center of the debate between the Facebook, uh, legis- you know, the trials, I guess, or the hearings where, you know, it's like, should the, should Facebook and Instagram be governed? Should, should Twitter be governed? And there's a strong resistance against that because they are private companies. So they should be allowed to do what they want. Uh, and we can debate at what level do they sort of become a utility and, and a shared good. And that, that's kind of the center of the debate in my understanding. Do you feel that the Europe has this attitude that's um, like, how do you sort of compare the two, the European versus the United States right. attitude? Because they are, I don't know if it's ahead or behind, but they're, they, they're certainly placing greater emphasis on different directional uh, structures, you call them. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, if you think about it, right, that's the mindset, like Americans love this mindset or thought that they that, you know, we're we're so, we're so free, but, you know, your choices, right. That if you want to shop at Amazon remotely or do X, Y, Z thing, yes, you're, you're willfully doing it, but you're doing it for a convenience and you're not necessarily thrilled at it. Like one of the things that I go and say like, okay, I, I go scuba diving. Okay. Yeah. And when I go scuba diving, no matter where I am, no matter what country I am in, I am assigning, I am signing a waiver that says if they mess up, that the, the, the vendor, if they mess up, if they cause me to die, I'm letting them off the hook and I will say, okay, it's, it's, I, I'm accepting that they can be willfully negligent. Right. Okay. I'm signing off be willfully negligent. And, and, you know, then I have no recourse and they won't let you dive unless you sign away. Hey man, we could like literally like, you know, put 
kill you. You know, have no, no we, we can have nothing in your tank. We could fill it with, you know, whatever gas that's going to, you know, kill you and you can't sue us. But that's, but so yes, am I signing that waiver? And am I getting into that contract because I want to dive? Yes. But is that okay? Because like, otherwise I can't dive. And so there became this thing and, and it's in the US, it's everywhere, you know, by and large, right? Where there used to be some sense of, you know, corporate responsibility that if an accident, because I used to work at a law firm too. Mm. I used to work at law firms and do their technical stuff on the back end. And so, you know, back in the day before corporations became people, right? There was that you expected a corporation to act with somewhat level of integrity. So negligence, okay, you know, a, a customer tripped on a, on a, um, uh, on a bump in the rug, right? The restaurant did not intentionally put the bump in the rug right, there. It right. just happened that the rug over time folded and it happened. But that's not willful negligence. But like, you know, excusing willful negligence and having to sign off on willful negligence, right? Is is that really okay? But what but, but, but what in America we say is, oh, but they have the choice. Oh, but you have the choice. You can choose not to do not to dive. What, you do not choose not to do, do you feel like uh, so, uh, is that but does that are you implying there that uh that it's because every scuba diving school does this that it's like well if you want to scuba dive there is no distribution of options it's not like some companies charge more but they take lower liability and some vice versa it's like that's just kind of oh yeah no and, and that's why i use it as a good example because everybody does it so your choices are that you know, you don't dive. Either you don't dive or you sign that waiver. And so, you know, where the EU is going and, you know, there's there's smart governance and not smart governance. There's governance overreach for sure, right? You know, um, but where the EU is going, you know, with regards to identity is more controlled in that every company under the sun should not be asking all of their clients for all of this information that they don't need to operate their business, but that they can then use to resell later mm -hmm. to make money off of, you know? And so, you know, and then, and that's where a lot of these self-sovereign, you know, digital identity places are going is that we need to be able to parse out that data. So that if you think about it, like, oh, and like, like, why does anybody care about what year you were born? Right. I mean, the, the, well, we gave an example, right? They, you know, at, at the bar, we have to care about what yeah. year you're born. But other than that, like, where do we really need to care about, you know, like what year you're born and where does anything, you know, come into play? Like, what do you really need to give your information out for? So I like a lot of these um, you know, companies that are coming out with, um, Craig Sellers, who's a long time, you know, uh, uh, OG, um, did tether. Um, he announced that, you know, he's coming out with self, which I like the name too, you know, and they're going to do self, which is going to be a self-sovereign digital identity. And I think that's, you know, I, I would like to see that be a, a future where we all have more control in that way. And we see less of um, the the grab either by corporations or by government. You know, 
Um, there's banking laws. Banking laws haven't been updated, you know, or ha- that, that's, well, it's not that they haven't been updated. They have. But, you know, back in the day where there was the requirements to have like all of this stuff on file and all of it centralized, et cetera, was because like, I'll, I'll out myself. I'm old enough that when my bank account got created, it was on an eight, uh, an index card. Oh, wow. Really? And written, really did and written by the bank teller looking at my ID. Huh. Right. Wow. And, they, and then I signed it. And so you couldn't in like, I like, yeah, I'm old enough. Like, right. So if you went, if I went to like, you know, do, do anything at a different branch, they didn't have that card on file. They would actually have to call my local branch that had the card on file and talk to somebody there. And so like you literally were banking at like your little branch because the, even the other branches that your bank would have wouldn't know who you are. Mm. You know, yeah. so, I mean, things have come a long way. So I think government just needs to, government has always been historically slow and they need to just catch up, right? As technology develops, they're always behind. Um, so like one of the things they wanted to do early days, like just to get like how they're behind, right? In early days, spam was a problem for individuals because you had to pay um, for your phone bill, right? And if you went to go download your mail, you were connected. That was charging, charging, charging. And then you find out that this is all this spam. So the U.S. Congress, their solution was, you know what we're going to do? We're going to force every ISP to KYC every single individual. We're going to not let anybody on the internet be anonymous. And everybody's going to have to be first name dot last name at provider.com. So like I would have to be Dawn Newton at AOL.com. And we were like, oh, no, 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 no. You got got to be kidding me. Absolutely, absolutely not. No way. There's other ways to combat spam. So it was a matter of the technologist, which this was, you know, my my co-founder, Justin, was one of the ones that went to speak to Congress to say like, no, 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 no. You do not want to solve this this way. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How, yeah, how, how influential do you think he was there? Like, it, it was that... Sometimes I, I look at these terrible proposals in government and feel helpless. W- was he in, particularly influential because he was in person or he had accomplished what he was or were his thoughts and, and ideas just just so well put that they were effective? Or was it kind of, there was a massive momentum of other people? Like, how, how do you view, I, I'm really interested in how people can organize or self-organize to uh, actually have their voices heard and make a change on regulation? I think that's a great question. And I don't have the greatest answer now because sadly our environment has changed. Um, but, but there's hope. I will say that. Right. Um, so he went in as an individual, um, person. He was the public policy director for the, uh, ISPC, which was the Internet Service Providers Consortium. He asked for a meeting and he got it. Okay. So that's step one. I will tell you a counter story, right? That's step one. He just asked for a meeting and he got it. It was with, um, one of the uh, senators that had proposed the bill. 
and went and, you know, talked to him and said, like, this is terrible. You're going to put the internet out of business because back then KYC was not cheap. You're talking about like $250 a price tag. Like what, like that wouldn't have even been a great model for AOL or Microsoft. It would have not, it would have crippled internet development in the U.S. as we know it. And so, but their, their hearts were in the right place. They wanted to, people were getting $400 phone bills when normally your phone bill was 15 to 20 bucks. So they wanted to service and help Americans out, but they had the wrong way to solve it. So he told them like, listen, give us some time, give us a little breathing room. We'll figure it out. And you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. And then they asked him if like he could substitute language in the law that would like take care of it. And he did. And they accepted it, you know, word for word. And so it was, you know, it was really this sense of cooperation. Now, I will say, um, you know, Justin has built three, three, three unicorn IPOs in Los Angeles, in specifically our reason. And, you know, Ben Sherman is our rep. And just, and you, I think everybody in the space knows Ben Sherman's thoughts on, you know, Bitcoin. And what are her thoughts? And who is he again? He's yeah. the... But ben Sherman is our rep. Um, he's a, a U.S. House of Representatives for our district. Okay. You know, now, Justin's spoken to Congress, has has a history of working with Congress on bills for the early internet. He's in, in this district in particular, created three, you know, uh, unicorns, which have employed, you know, people in this district, you know, and made money for this district. And, um, you know, and he struggled to get a meeting. And what's the attitude generally of, of the, yeah. Do you see a, a sway on politicians be, do you think the trend now is politicians in the U S at least are becoming, uh, more open and desiring to integrate crypto and Bitcoin or vice versa? I do. If you think about it and look back, and that's one of the projects I'm starting, I've been asking, and I've asked this on Twitter a couple of times over, and I still want to keep going and going and keep asking to get more and more response is like, we should know who is, you know, pro uh, crypto in government, and who is pro crypto that is running, because like November is coming, right? And um, we should understand, like, I don't want to see the United States get left behind on this, you know, on this wave of innovation, because uh, we did a great job, you know, with the internet and, you know, with all the socials and stuff, right? It's been great for for the US, you know, for the economy, for everything else. And so it would be great to see. I do think people are trending as they learn more, and especially as, you um, representatives who understand it are, you know, taking the mic or being, you know, given the mic Mm -hmm. and being incredibly articulate and really um, not talking in geek speak, but really speaking in very, you know, plain English about, you know, what it is, I think. And we're seeing it on both sides of the aisle, right? We're seeing Democrats go for it. We're seeing Republicans go for it. Uh, We're seeing it go not just at the federal level, but we're seeing states go for it. Um, you know, I would like to see the U.S. have a have a broader outlook for it and be providing, you know, clarity. But I also appreciate, you know, like California got cars updated because California was a big buyer of cars. Right. So California led on that, you know, in the past. 
You know, we can see, um, you know, states lead on this. Uh, we saw marijuana, right? Marijuana, by and large, is now legal everywhere, but we still didn't get it at the federal level. People were trying to get it at the federal level, said, well, that's not working. So got California, do medical marijuana, then turn it around just for recreational use. Then all these other states went and saw, ooh, there's money to be had there. Like, that's like lottery money. Let's go, right? And so to your point earlier, right, there's the mission of doing good, right? So to me, like everybody should be able to, you know, sm- like smoke marijuana, you know, legally, et cetera. So that's the mission of doing good. But the decision makers needed to understand and have for them, it was like a cost benefit analysis, right? When you go right down to it, they realize, ooh, more money for our state. And oh, this isn't the scary, harmful thing that we were talk- told as kids, right? Because all the boomers were told that like it's a gateway drug, it's highly addictive, you know. No, yeah. no, yeah. I'll just, you know, so I think education, you know, um, around it. And then to your point earlier, they need to understand that it's, you know, it, it's economically sound and is the right decision, um, you know, for the country, not just for, you know, doing good for the sake of doing good, but that it actually is a, is a, is a net, a net positive. And I think sadly, right. That's where things go, you know, all the time. That's just how the world works. What do they do? They go towards net positive, you're saying? They want to go to net positive, right? right like they right. want to see, right? Like when the in the old days, right? I mean, a lot of boomers, right? And I mean, if you think about it, most of the people in political office in the US are boomer, right? Right. You're very and old. They have, right. They're really old. I'm the generation, you know, I'm Gen X right underneath them, but like I was taught by them. So even I had it, like I got told that like, you know, marijuana was like the devil's lettuce. Right. And it would make you go insane. I mean, it was basically told that you were told that if you like smoked pot, it was like, you know, you like would lose your mind. You would be in a mental institution. Yeah. You know, you would literally go crazy. You would be an instant addict, you know, all this like just misinformation, you know, which, but by and large, the American people believed. Yeah. You know? And so it was vilified. And now, you know, you've got most of the said, what are we, I mean, we're high up. I think it's, it's, it's in the thirties, if not the forties now that, that marijuana is legal. In. Yeah. Well, I think it's a broader like trend too. I, th- I think it's the, I think it's overall, I think that the real energetic momentum is people's uh, recognition that there is a massive uh, existential threat in the mental health uh, illnesses that people are experiencing. And that could be expressed by, you know, deaths by overdose, mass shootings, uh, suicides, depression. Uh, and these things are largely correlated to, although I personally don't believe they're caused by um, uh, painkillers and other uh, over-the-counter or, or prescribed drug medications. But they, th- there seems to be like a, almost like a, a deep unease across society. And I see marijuana... Uh, psilocybin, actually in Oregon, where I am, psilocybin is now approved for uh, psychedelic treatment and therapy, um, ketamine, um, MDMA, like a lot, the things are really moving across the board. And I think this is the kind of thing, like maybe one thought I've had on this, curious to hear your reaction to this, is that uh, I almost imagine if you took all the stars in, in the universe and all the the planets out there, and you said, "What would be the what would be the type of ways that s- intelligent life and societies would evolve?" And I think that there's some there's some physical constraints on this. 
you know, you have like the size of the earth, right? You have the number of uh, joules, energy hitting the, hitting the earth. So there's like energy capture potential. There's what we have on the earth. And then there's what we can do with material that we have. We can manipulate it in different ways. So you need like, this is kind of a, I'm like running up to this, right? But you have uh, all, all these different types, all you have, like earth is, it's fertile because we have lithium and ion and, and all these different types of complex uh, uh, metals and materials. So it's just, it sparks life. However, you can, I don't know exactly how that happens, <laughs> but we, we come to this point where uh, societies are getting increasingly advanced. And as they become advanced, there's different like fire, the wheel, technology, communication. These things are, they're not like, we didn't just happen to lay wires down and have telegraphs and, and lay telephone wires. Like these things are, they're fundamental to, I think, how any network is built. You know, you can look at bees, you can look at moles underground. Like if you look at the early railroad maps of uh, the, the United States, like it's congregated on the east side because that's where the people came over from Europe. But then it just, it just like spider webs out in this pattern of like, you know, how the, originally it was how far a horse could travel in one day. So that was the distance that like every city was was developed. And then I think there's a increasingly more technologically advanced uh, checkpoints that are that are reached. And I think one of them is the use of psychedelic medicine. And if it's not if it's not balanced by the explosion in technology, which we experienced from, you know, mid 80s to where we are today. The, the technology can be like overwhelming for people. We can become hyper-connected. And I tend to think like there's naturally occurring balancing energies and uh, technology, you, you could say. And I think psychedelics and the, the use of those in a uh, intentional way kind of serves as like a, a naturally, uh, it just exists the way it is, but it balances out the hyper- connected technological tools that we're developing. And I think the stagnation from the 70s where, you know, Nixon's war on drugs and said, okay, no, there's no more psychedelic research uh, has kind of created this like reservoir of potential and that, that has kind of starved people of like ways to handle their life in a meaningful way. Like if you go to school to be a psychiatrist today in Western at least in America, you're lear- the primary focus of your education is on the various ways the pharmaceutical drugs interact. Like that's, if you're coming out of a psychiatry degree, that's what you understand. And that, do- that to me doesn't seem pointed at the, the right way to solve the, the problems that people are facing of you know, mental illness and psychological distress. So I, I, I tend to think about crypto and the development of the decentralized technology as as in lieu of this like part of this process so it's it's like a it's like consolidation and then decentralization so the internet like connects everyone and then everyone gets super connected and then we're then we decentralize it with this decentralizing technology and i tend to think that it's it's like it's 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 part of a i i i this is a little bit this is beyond observation, this is more speculation, but I, I would imagine that as technology evolves on all the other planets, you know, in theory that there are out there, that it looks very similar, that there's like a, a method of communication between everyone across the globe. And then you have this um, propagation of like decentralized 
databases to ensure the integrity and privacy and all the other capabilities that we're talking about. But that, that's my long, that's like my high level theory on uh, the, the world. And no, that was super cool. no, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That was super cool. I mean, I think that like, Does that make any sense. Know, no, no, absolutely it did. Absolutely it did. And if you see, you know, to your thing, right? Like when you're talking about the railroad and the expansion, and if we do go out and think that, you know, there are other worlds out there that are, you know, supporting, uh, you know, sentient life and NASA is, you know, sharing all of this stuff with us, you know, it's like we, whether we're conscious of it or not, we tend to make reality what sci-fi authors dream in their heads. Yeah. 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 I think not. I think it is. No, it is. It is, uh, um, totally on point that the first star tech phone that, um, Motorola came out with flipped just like the original star uh, Trek communicator, yeah. you know, it like looked identical and we do tend to whether, whether we know it or not, I don't, I don't know that any of us are going and saying like, Oh my God, yes, let's develop the, the, the tricorder, you know, that bones had, you know, but there is this, they like, you know, the creatives, cause you were talking about that, the creative side versus the practical side, right? The creative side always imagines you know, um, you know, a bright or dystopian, you know, future, and then society goes and and manifests that, you know, as a whole. Like if you had said to me, you know, back in the early internet days, that you know people would be ordering cars from strangers, where we were taught stranger danger, stranger danger, kids, oh, people are going to try to get you to get in their car with candy, right? And then you're telling me, oh, you know what? 30 years from now, people, strangers are going to be in their homes and they're going to use an app on their phone through the internet to have a stranger come to their own house that they don't know from a hole in the wall. And they're going to get in their car and let them drive them God only knows where. Yeah. And I would have told you, you're nuts. Like not going to happen, right? So even when, like even people that built the early internet, we, we can vision out, right? Vision out email, no problem you know, vision out like that kind of stuff. Like we saw what was one, two steps in front of us. We did not see mm. what was, you know, 20, 30 years later, um, you know, uh, renting houses, Airbnb, what? Mm. You're going to fly somewhere yeah, and sit a stranger's home and they're going to give you the keys? Yeah, yeah. To their house? Do you th- like with a deposit of like a couple hundred dollars? Let me ask you this. Do like, you think it's possible to, you know, hindsight 2020, obviously, but do you think it's possible to draw any, is there, is there a, is there a, pre- is there a muscle to be built for seeing these patterns? Like, uh, you know, could, is it possible to have predicted? Uh, granted, no one or not many people did, but, and, and I often hear like even the best VCs will say, oh, we, we don't know. We just back smart people and we don't know what ideas will work. Um, and I, I want to believe that, but I, I'm like, well, is that, is that, it kind of, it feels a little bit like giving up. It feels almost like, well, we don't know. We don't know what, what works, what doesn't. Human beings are a giant unknown black box. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't really resonate with me. And I'm wondering, like, is that, how do you feel about that? Is that, is there, um, I've got I've got an actual real example, and it's something that my co-founder figured out a long time ago that never took out that is now commonplace today. So um, he came up with the concept of private phone, 
And this is back in um, 2001. Mm. He figured this out, right? So it's 20 years ago, 21, 21 years ago. 2001, he came up with private phone where we could do voice over IP. I could have a phone number that I gave out to anybody that I didn't care about, right? That's my phone number and it works and it's got a voicemail when I get it and it goes to email and nobody is none the wiser. Um, but it didn't take off. People weren't ready for it. People couldn't. Th- so I think there is, there are people that for sure see the future. And I, and I know some of them and they see exactly where things are going. But at the same time, your timing has to be right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you've got to get, you know, like, um, you've got to get the population to also agree with your vision and to adopt the technology. And so now Google Voice, everybody's got a Google Voice. Everybody's giving out their phone number and don't care because nobody's actually getting their cell phone number. You're not giving out your cell phone number to anybody by and large, right? You got the voice and then you then you'll then you'll tell them once you've vetted them, then they'll get, you know, your your cell number, whatever. Um yeah, I, and I'll- so that yeah. Just adding on to that, one thing that comes to mind is it's almost like to to be able to have good, have the right timing is not to say you need everybody in society at the same time. There's that crossing the chasm concept where if you can get like I think it's like twelve percent or fifteen percent of people to adopt this, the early ad- so is the is like ten percent of society ready for this? Is the question right? Which is and then who's got the better stuff? Right? Like we've seen people talk about beta and VHS right? All the time. Beta was the better tech, but VHS was what took off. And so they had better marketing. So that's where we made a choice that we liked the messaging as opposed to the actual tech and the tech, you know, anybody who actually, you know, studies that and knows that is like, wow, Betamax is by far a superior tech, you know, and we chose VHS, but they had great marketing, they had great branding. So there's that too, like there's a whole bunch of things that come into and what message resonates for people, right? You know, like what, what message resonates? Like we were talking about, you know, marijuana and like still to this day, I have, you know, boomer family members that are like, oh my gosh, it's so terrible. Yeah, yeah. There's no, no, there is no reaching them. And oh my God, if you talked about psilocybin, they would be like, yeah, they'd, yeah, be, yeah. they'd have, yeah. right. They'd be touching their pearls endlessly about yeah. it, <laughs> but you've got to have, like, I agree with you though, in your mindset, right? That like your mindset is that it's got to be about, you know, you were saying, right? You've got to have the, you know, the contract and the expand, the expand and the contract. And then it's got to be about the messaging of like, what are people willing to listen to? What risk they're going to take? And then to your point, there is mission, right? Like I do think that a lot of these, you know, like, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of maps. And um, John Gilmore, again, old school internet OG, you know, with with maps and, you know, doing work with veterans. But I think that was very strategic with them, right? Because, the, you know, the, the government politicians care about the veterans, mm-hmm. like, you've got to care about the veterans if you're a politician, you know, and they were really suffering from PTSD definitively, And so maps could go and ask the government, like, listen, we want to study this in particular. And like, you know, that resonated. Mm. It was very strategic and it was, it was a do good mission for sure, you know, but they were strategic in their thinking of how to approach that with people who would be by and large, very anti that as a whole. And now to your point, right? you're starting to change hearts and minds are starting to change and people are more and more accepting of it and realizing that the, 
you know, the old school messaging that we got in the in the seventies and earlier was just incorrect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that people are willing a lot. And most people are willing to listen, and the people who aren't, well, then they don't have to participate. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I think that is huge. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are, you know, if, if we do wind up seeking out new life and new civilizations, you know, I would not be surprised to your point that they are, you know, that they have some similarities with ours. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. No? Um, yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How, wh- where do you, so I, I want to tie you down on, on net, on, on net, sorry, not Netflix, <laughs> uh, net key a little bit on, on like, uh, where is, where are things now you've raised? It looks like about three and a half, $4 million. How do you assess progress traction so far? Um, either revenue or yeah. people, however you think about that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, our big win that I love to tell people in the space is that we put 4 million people on the Bitcoin blockchain in six weeks, 4 million people. You know, it was the country of El Salvador, the adults, they had a huge uptake. And then um, one of the companies that partnered, um, they were allowed to share publicly um, 2.5 million of them stayed active. Mm. That's a huge that is that is astronomically a huge take rate. Right. But I think that accomplishment, the reason why it had the stick um, and kept so many is because it was really speaking to them from a practical matter. You know, Western Union, I'm, I can only speak like U.S., right? So if you're sending money from the United States to El Salvador and you send 100 bucks, Western Union takes 12. Hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot. So you're sending, you know, your, your family, you know, 80, $88. And if we go and send Bitcoin to them, we send 100 USD of Bitcoin and then 100 USD of Bitcoin comes out the other side. Or you know? close to it. And, you know, we're close to it, right? You know, or close to it. Um, well, well, Chivo, the, the, the government app that we specifically work with isn't charging, you know, fees. And so... Oh, um, they cover it. You know, talking, yeah. So they're talking about, you know, changing, literally changing the face of the country. Right. And what I like to do, you know, um, to your thing about, um, you know, uh, measurements. So, you know, Singapore used to be a, you know, very poor country uh, pre-internet and their government, thank God, right. The, their wise government leaders at the time said, oh my God, this internet is really going to be something. So we're going to spend money on infrastructure and education. And now if any business is thinking about, you know, opening up an, a, an office in Asia or a presence in Asia, you know, they think of two places, Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and so Singapore put itself on the map by going all in on this new technology, this new innovation, and they called it. Yeah. They called it right, Yeah, you know? And so, you know, what I would like to see is, so for us, right, that, we are the first company that can say we put, you know, 4 million people on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, and got them access to, you know, Bitcoin. And I want to see other countries doing it. You know, that would be that the next thing is like, what other countries, you know, are, are going to do it and, and have a good impact um, on their citizens. And, and have you, are you, would you raise, um, 
more venture capital? Is it, how, how many people work at the company? And can you say anything about revenue or traction? We have about, yeah, we have about 20, 20 people working at the company. So one of the things both my co-founder and I are great at um, is uh, not just massive bodies. We are very strategic in, in how we scale teams. And it's why we were able to compete against giants like AOL and, and Microsoft and, and beat them, you know, at their own game. Um, so, uh, yeah, we would, we would raise, I would say that we are, we are ripe to raise around, um, you know, right now, probably, you know, um, uh, and I, yeah, don't want to, don't want to speak to specifics, but yeah, our, our, our phone, our, you know, you say our phone's been ringing off the hook, but reality, you know, email, email and signal kind of thing, um, have been going. Once we did that, I mean, we've already proved it can be done. Yeah. And we got, and we, and we did that in, you know, we had to get that live. We weren't the first choice provider. Yeah. It was, I imagine there's a RFP process, bidding process. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was a bidding process and we, we lost. And then the other provider, you know, failed on launch and we came in as the emergency save. So we didn't have three months to build it. We, we had, we had six weeks to build it. Wow. So we, 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 it was an, it was an incredible run. So we've, you know, really, really proven ourselves there. So we've got, you know, a lot of VCs calling us, you know, asking us, you know, are you doing a round? Yeah. yeah. How yeah. much are you, Leo? How much, how much can we give you kind of thing? Yeah. And so it's a good place to be, yeah. you know, especially when, you know, what just happened, you know, in, in the market, you know, and, and, you know, we had heard that people were, were struggling to raise. That's, that's not us, you know, and are you, you've got to figure out who you want in the group. And are you, is the revenue model to charge a co- company? I mean, El Salvador, I imagine just writes a check per person that uses it. Is that generally the, the, the company? So the marketplace, the exchange will, charge yep. you'll charge them a couple dollars per screen something like that yeah they go they go yeah they go and they pay us like a bundle mm-hmm. you know and depending on how big they are right the, the bigger the bigger the buy the bigger the you know the bigger the discount and they you know pay us for a bundle and then um you know to your point about innovation like i i can't speak to that but i will say like you know president bukele is is really good about getting announcements out to the people and, you know, it's going to be one of those things like stay tuned. He's he's not done yet when it comes to when it comes to uh, uh, working on working on Bitcoin. El Salvador doing. Yeah. Unique and interesting things for for his country. That's not, that's all I can say. That's all I can say is stay tuned. But he's got he's got some. So you're bullish on El Salvador. Yes. Awesome. Yes, for sure. For sure. He's a really smart man and they've got great people working on, you know, working on the team down there um, that's awesome. to make things, you know, a go. Yeah. I mean, the, that stickiness the, factor is just insane. Maybe they're like the, the Singapore of the South America. <laughs> that's, what <laughs> I, awesome. that's what I like to say. Down there, when I'm down there talking to the Latin America, you know, media, I absolutely say that. Like, I, I want to see, like, he's already setting that layup. And I don't know, like, I have not personally met him, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's, like you said, right? People are looking at models and then reiterating and everything. You know, if I think what his plan is, if I had to, you know, guess, is he wants El Salvador with Bitcoin to be the Singapore of the internet. Mm, super and smart. An yeah. incredibly smart play. Yeah. An incredibly smart play. Yeah, agreed. You know? Go, might as well, right? 
go for it. What do you guys lose? <laughs> I, mean, I agree. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Don, where are you writing online or tweeting anything personally you want to throw out there? Um, I am. So my Twitter is just Dawn Emerson Mary Newton um, on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I tweet about, you know, I tweet about, you know, crypto stuff. I tweet about building businesses. I tweet about, you know, startups. Um, one of the things that you were asking when you, we, we had started early, you said, I, you know, I might ask you like, you know, early startup, like, you know, builder, builder questions. The one thing I would tell people is like fire faster. Mm, that's what you, uh, yeah. 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 My, my takeaway is that you need you know, when you are scaling and you are going to have that hockey stick moment, you need to have an amazing, amazing, amazing team. And if somebody is not a fit, and I'm not saying not contrarian, you do want contrarian. Like you, if you and I are together, right, I want you to stand and check me. I want you to push back and poke at my ideas. So I'm not saying, oh, everybody's got to be, you know, oh, oh everybody's got to be drinking the same Kool-Aid. No, you know, I just think that you need people that know how to run Mm -hmm. all out, all out, you know, that, that marathon towards success. And, um, yeah. So it's kind of like if, if, if things are not gelling and fitting, make a change. Don't, don't belabor it. Change, change pivots faster, you know, whether that's firing people, whether that's changing the model, just, you know, test it, change it, you know, keep innovating. Um, because that lack of innovation, you know, if you stick, you know, stick hard in what you're doing, like you, you know, you're, you might, you might be, you might be causing your own failure. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I need to hear that. It's good advice. Don, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. And- I had a great time. And thank you for sharing your vision. Like this really was collaborative and really good back and forth. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Hope to have you back on someday. Let's do a V2. Yeah. Awesome. Totally. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Feeling stuck in your current job? Looking for a career pivot? Are you a proven leader looking to step up? The University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business prepares students to meet challenges, solve problems, and obtain a profound understanding of how to operate in the modern economy. With MBA and MS programs offering flexible options to fit your lifestyle and goals. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more today at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired. Fearless. Unstoppable. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.